again tonight, and we are so glad to have all of those who are visiting with us. We are thankful for the uh, week that lie ahead and for all of those who have come for, um, to enjoy Servants Academy, and we trust that our time together will, uh, will be profitable. Invite your attention to Hebrews chapter 4 tonight. Four pieces of lettuce from Hebrews chapter 4 to Christians who are wrestling with their faithfulness. The Holy Spirit inspired the author of this book to write all about superiority, the superiority, the supremacy, the betterness, if you will, of Jesus the Christ and Christianity. And so in many ways in this book, Christianity will be described as superior to Judaism and really by application to anything else, to any other philosophy, to any other way of life. Jesus is better than the angels, superior to them. He's superior to the prophets. He is superior to Moses. He offers a superior rest. He is a superior high priest who has uh, offered a better sacrifice and ushered in a better or superior covenant and on and on the Hebrews writer goes. But in the midst of all of this discussion about superiority, we find a number of sections of exhortation, times in the midst of the argument in which the Hebrews writer will pause the argument in order to give a, a point of motivation. Most of the time in these exhortation sections, the Hebrews writer will focus upon the Word of God whether it's not neglecting the word of God, drifting by way of neglect, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 and following, or whether it's not ignoring or rebelling against the word of God as the children of Israel did in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 and following, most of these exhortations have to do with the word of God. Now today we're studying four passages in Hebrews chapter 4. We looked at two of them this morning. Let us fear, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 1. Not let us fear death, that's chapter 2 and verse 15. Not let us not fear man, that's chapter 11. Not even let us fear God, that's chapter 10 and other places throughout the book. But particularly in this passage, the Hebrews writer is emphasizing the need to fear the consequences of apostasy. Here are the results, the Hebrews writer says. Here's what happens whenever you turn your back on God, whenever you stop following and obeying him. And he is using, of course, the generation that left Egypt as exhibit A. They had rest awaiting for them. They could have entered into their rest, but they were not able to enter into their rest because of their hard hearts and because of their disbelief and disobedience. And so the lesson then, therefore, is... You look to their example. You look to the consequence that they suffered in missing out on their rest, and you fear lest you suffer the consequence of missing out on your rest. Let us fear. Hebrews chapter 11, or excuse me, chapter 4 and verse number 11, the second let us passage in the, in the chapter. Let us be diligent. Literally, let us strive or let us make every effort to obtain. The same idea that we find in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 3. Give diligence or earnestly endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
Same thing we see in 2 Timothy 2 and verse number 15. Give diligence to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The idea is give it all you've got. Why? Why should we give everything we have to enter into that rest? Number one, so that we don't fall in the same way that they did, the end of verse number 11. Number two, because the word of God that they ignored that is pleading with you is also going to be your judge. Verse number 12 and number three, because no one can hide from God. Verse number 13, let us be diligent. Tonight we look at the last two and we turn our attention to chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. But in this case, the Hebrews writer uses some let us passages in order to motivate in a slightly different way. We're not talking about fearing the consequences of apostasy. We're not talking about unfaithfulness. We're not talking about the importance of work or labor. We're talking about, to summarize it in one word, we're talking about access. I want you to think for a moment about uh, perhaps some uh, dignitary, a president maybe, or a king or a queen or a senator or a congressman, whoever it may be, some person that you've thought at some time in the past, you know, I'd like to meet that person. I'd like to have the ability to go in their office and sit down and talk with them and just, you know, have some coffee and, and just spend half the day talking about a number of things. Of course, we know that that wouldn't ever really be possible because the reality is that people in our world who occupy positions like that are practically inaccessible. There are all kinds of protocols and procedures that have to be observed for a person who, who actually is privileged to be able to have an audience with someone like that, someone of that rank, but that audience is not unlimited. And it's not as if they can have that audience any time that they may want. But tonight, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, we're talking about having an audience with someone who is infinitely greater than any president or king or queen or, queen or senator or anyone else could ever imagine being, and that's having an audience with God. The Hebrews writer says in verse number 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. <clears throat> For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Under the Levitical system, <clears throat> the system, by the way, that these Christians are contemplating returning to, under that system, access to God essentially went through the priest. Individuals brought their sacrifice to the priest and the priest offered it. And on that one day of the year, the day of atonement, it was the high priest who was able to enter into the holy of holies. Not just anyone can do it. There's only one person who could do it. And before he could do it, he had to make a sacrifice for the sins of himself and his family. He could only go in one day a year and he had to meet a number of conditions. Not just anyone could do it. But the message of the book of Hebrews is that that arrangement is no more. And the reason is because not only is Jesus greater than the prophets and the angels and Moses and his rest is greater, but also Jesus is a greater, a superior high priest. 
and because of the reality of our great and our superior high priest, we have the ability to enter into the throne room of our God and receive an audience at any time. I want you to look with me tonight at these three verses, and I want you to notice that basically there are two points in these three verses. We won't study it this way, but I would encourage you to write this down just by way of summarizing them. Number one, because of Jesus' greatness, let us hold fast our confession. Number two, because of Jesus' human experience, let us draw near. Now let's look at this passage closer. First of all, I want you to notice that Jesus is described as our great high priest. Our great high priest, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 14. Notice how the Hebrews writer, uh, notice the words that the Hebrews writer uses in this passage because they all have meaning. Notice, first of all, how he describes the greatness of our high priest, Jesus the Christ. He says, first of all, seeing then that we have, implication is we do have a high priest. Why would that be important? Well, the reason is because the language implies that perhaps there were some who were doubting. Perhaps there were some of these Jewish Christians who were looking for that high priest, if you will, as the mediator. Maybe they're wondering, do we have a go-between between us and God? And the Hebrews writer says, look, I want you to know that we do have a high priest. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse number 25, he'll go on and he'll tell us that Jesus... Uh, that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. In Hebrews chapter 9, he'll tell us that Jesus has entered into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God for us. We do have a high priest, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 14, but he's not just any high priest. He is a great high priest. Well, great in contrast or in comparison to what or whom? Well, first of all, as we've indicated already, the greatness of Christ is one of the primary themes of this book. And in particular, the greatness of Christ as high priest is perhaps the primary theme of the book because in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, the Hebrews writer says, this is the main point of the things that we're saying. Excuse me, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He is great. His greatness is the theme of the book. But specifically, this high priest is greater than Aaron. He is greater than any one of Aaron's descendants. He is greater than any other human high priest could ever possibly imagine being. You're thinking about going back into Judaism? You're thinking about leaving New Testament Christianity? Well, if you are, what you need to recognize is that you are turning your back on the greatest high priest that you could ever imagine having. Jesus is greater because he is highly exalted, because he is superior. But notice also the Hebrews writer tells us another way in which his greatness is seen. Look at the middle of verse number 14. Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Notice that phrase. He has passed through the heavens. 
Go in your minds back to the Levitical system and to the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter number 18. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would pass from the altar of burnt offering through the holy place beyond the veil and into the Holy of Holies where he would then sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. This human high priest would enter in finally to the Holy of Holies into the presence of God as it were and he would begin to offer the sacrifices and do the things that that God had commanded. But as the writer describes Jesus as our great high priest, here's what he's telling us. He's saying, look, Jesus having completed his work on earth, he has passed through the heavens and he now exists in the presence of the Father. It's not as if we're in a situation in which Jesus only on some occasions is in the presence of the Father. No, that's not the case at all. The reality is that that Jesus exists always in the presence of the Father. And back to chapter 7, verse 26 and 27, here's what he says. We have such a high priest who is fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Then we have chapter 8 and verse number 1, which we've noticed earlier. We have chapter 9, verse number 12, and chapter 9 and verse number 24. The emphasis of all of these passages is that, look, Jesus is not like any human high priest. Jesus did not have to offer sacrifice for his sins before he sacrificed for yours because he had no sin. Therefore, Jesus, having lived a perfect life, having given himself willingly as the sacrificial lamb, has now conquered sin, has now conquered the grave, has now conquered death, and he arose and he ascended back into the heavens. He now occupies the throne at the right hand of the Father before whom he exists permanently, making intercession for us. We have a high priest. He is a great high priest, and he is great because he has passed through the heavens. But notice this last point in verse number 14. He is also also one who is described as both human and divine. Look at how Jesus is described at the end of verse number 14. He is Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, that's a word, that, that name indicates his humanity. The Hebrews writer talked about that already in Hebrews chapter 2. The one who is superior to the angels had to be made a little lower than the angels according to Hebrews chapter 2 temporarily because there were some things that needed to be accomplished. Namely, he had to to win the victory over death so that, Hebrews 2 verse 14 and 15, those who labored in fear of death didn't have to be beholden to it anymore. The humanity of Jesus, but he is not just Jesus. He is the Son of God. That's his divinity. That's his divine nature. Jesus never did sacrifice even one ounce of his his divinity whenever he came into this world, whenever the Word became flesh. Read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and following. 
So the Hebrews writer wants us to know we have a high priest. He is a great high priest. He is great because he has passed through the heavens. He now exists in the presence of God making intercession for us. And oh, by the way, not only is he God, but he also has a tie to humanity. More about that in the next verse. But now look at the end of verse 14 for our reaction. Here's our reaction. Hold fast your confession or your profession. One of the great themes of the book, chapter 2 and verse 1, chapter 3 and verse 6, verse 14, chapter 10, verse 23, chapter 13, verse 12 and 13, and over and over and over again, the writer will say, don't give up, don't give in, don't stop, don't turn your back on the Lord, just be faithful. Why? Because we have a great high priest. And here's the implication for that original audience. A person cannot renounce their confession of faith or their profession of faith in Christ without also renouncing their high priest and intercessor, the one who is the go-between between them and between the Father. You can't, have, you can't get rid of one without the other. Jesus is our great high priest. Now I want you to notice with me verse 15 and 16 where the writer will tell us that Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. Remember in verse number 14, we have Jesus, the Son of God. We have a reference to his humanity as well as his godhood, if you will. But now in verse 15, we begin to see the writer expand more on the human side, if you will, of our great high priest. And the way that he begins the passage is a little bit, a little bit weird. It comes off the tongue a little strange. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our infirmities. And the negative wording of this statement suggests that it is intended to be a reply to a possible objection to the affirmation of the high priesthood of Jesus. In other words, perhaps it was the case, or maybe we could say, was it possible that there were some who were reading this epistle, who were listening to this sermon being presented to them, and the thought came into their mind, well, look, we have a great high priest, that's great, and he's in the heavens for us, and he makes intercession for us, and that's great, but look, does that mean that he doesn't have any idea what it's like to be me? Does that mean that he is so separated from human experience and human existence that he, doesn't, he cannot comprehend what it is to hurt and to need and to suffer and to be in sorrow and all of those things? Is, is it the case that he doesn't know what it's like to be a man? The Hebrews writer says, no, no, that's not the case. That's not, even, that's not the case at all. Earlier in chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, the writer said, Therefore, speaking of Jesus, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might uh, be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Listen to this. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is also able to aid those who are tempted. You see, the message of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, as the writer will tell us, is that we don't, we don't have a high priest who is a deist, if you will. 
It's not a situation in which God created the world and then he stepped back and said, I don't want anything else to do with it. Or Jesus, uh, the word became flesh and then once he went back into heaven, he said, look, I don't want anything to do with them anymore. That's not the case at all. Rather, he says, we have a high priest who is great. Yes, but he is, he's also a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. I want you to look with me at the word sympathize. It's a, a very powerful word, lots of meaning here. The word means to have the same feeling. And the literal idea is it is a fellow feeling that comes from being fully acquainted with the circumstance. It is a fellow or a like-minded feeling that comes from being fully acquainted with the circumstance. In other words, the same suffering the same trial, the same emotions, and on and on. I want you to stop for a moment and think about the word weakness. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. The idea is literally just the, the infirmities, if you will, that are a reality of the human existence. As we said a moment ago, when the Word became flesh, He never ceased being God. But we have to realize that while He was 100% God, He was also 100% man. And there are a number of things that we deal with as human beings, and we've got to understand that what this writer is trying to get across to us, what the Holy Spirit is trying to get across to us, is that Jesus knows what it's like. Do you know what it is to do you know what it is to suffer? Jesus knew what it was to suffer. Philippians chapter 2 verses 7 to 9. The scripture said that Jesus says that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The most humiliating and excruciating way of dying that man could ever come up with, Jesus endured that. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse number 8, though he, were, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Someone says, look, this is a very difficult life and we suffer. Jesus says, I've suffered. Have you ever had anyone betray you? a close friend, a family member maybe, someone who you depended upon and in whom you confided and at eventually that person turned their back on you and stuck a knife right in, the, in yours. Jesus knew what that was like too. Ju see uh, Judas. What about losing a loved one? Well, Jesus stood at the grave of Lazarus in John chapter 11 and the Bible tells us that Jesus wept. Jesus knows what it's like to lose a loved one. What about dealing with temptation? Notice in Hebrews 4, verse number 15, the last part of this verse, he says, He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And earlier in chapter 2, in verse number 18, remember he said that for in that he himself suffered being tempted, he is also able to aid those who are tempted. Are we tempted? Are we tried? Are we tested? Yes. Do those tests and do those trials and do those temptations sometimes, do they seem to be like these heavy boulders that we're carrying around as weights on our shoulders? Yes. What do we learn about Jesus in Matthew chapter 4? The Bible tells us that Jesus went out into the wilderness and he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. 
and yet he endured all of that without sin. He always did those things that pleased the Father. According to John chapter 8 and verse number 29, Jesus was able to overcome the temptation that the devil put before him. And by the way, that wasn't the last time that the devil would tempt him. Jesus knows temptation. Jesus knows suffering. Jesus knows agony. Jesus knows heartbreak. Jesus knows loss. Jesus knows betrayal. He is our great high priest. Yes, that's right. But he is a high priest who has stood in our shoes. And the writer wants us to understand that he is fully acquainted with the circumstances of life which we endure. So now notice, just like we did in verse 14, in verse 15 and 16, there's a reaction. Verse 14, he is our great high priest. That's his description. And our reaction is, or our responsibility is, let's hold fast our confession. Verse 14, he is our sympathetic high priest. Verse 16, here is our responsibility or our reaction. We might even call it our privilege. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now the Hebrews writer begins to use this priestly language. The idea is that we are priests who are able to approach Jehovah through our high priest. God is not like the president or the queen of England. God is not like some dignitary who requires an appointment uh, way out in advance and a background check and uh, all sorts of other hoops that have to be jumped through in order to have a five-minute audience with them. That's not the kind of God that we serve. Rather, we serve a God who the Bible says we have the ability to approach at any time. We have the ability to approach with any need. Not only do we have that ability, God wants us to do it. Look at the word boldness. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. The term boldness is the same word that the writer used back in chapter 3 and verse number 6 when he said, But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of our hope firm to the end. The word boldness literally means confidence or boldness of speech. But this word in the Greek New Testament, outside of biblical Greek in ancient Greece, it is a word that denoted the right of the citizen to be able to go into any public assembly and to speak his mind on any subject that he wanted. A right that belonged to the citizens of, the, of ancient Greece to go into a public assembly and speak their mind openly. Now, mind you that that right didn't belong to non-citizens, just like the right to approach the throne of grace doesn't belong to non-Christians. But we're Christians, and we have a great high priest. And what God wants us to understand is that we have the right, we have the privilege, if you will, to go before our God on his throne and speak with openness. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7. Be anxious for nothing, 
But in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the God of peace shall keep or guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and verse 7. We often pray we approach the throne of our God with things that we thank Him for our blessings. We approach Him and we ask for things and we thank Him for the good things in life. But you know, God tells us, I also want you to come before me with your anxieties. I also want you to come before me with your fears. I want you to come before me with your cares. I want to know the things that trouble you. That's the idea of being able to come boldly and cast our cares upon him. But notice, where is it or to whom are we uh, approaching? He says we are approaching the throne of grace and the grammar suggests that what he's really saying is we're approaching a place where grace is enthroned. The throne of grace is the place where grace is enthroned. We don't approach a God who sits on a throne of vengeance. We don't approach a God who is like what the pagan world viewed their little g-gods. They viewed them as being temperamental. They viewed them as those who were unpredictable. And really, in many cases, they viewed their idol gods as being just as immoral as people. So they never knew what they were going to get when they approached them. But that's not the kind of God we serve. We serve a God who is a gracious God. And by the way, let me suggest four points that are implied by the fact that we can approach the throne of grace boldly. Number one, God sits on the throne and God rules over the universe. The Most High rules in the kingdoms of men, Daniel 4 and verse number 25. Envision the great throne scene of Revelation chapter 4 where God the Father is seated upon the throne and the worshipers are surrounding him and they are worshiping him day and night without ceasing and the prayers of the saints are coming up before him. When we approach the throne of grace, we know we are approaching the throne of the one who has created and who has the sovereign right to rule. Number two, the fact that we are told to approach boldly the throne of grace tells me that God has not abandoned us, that God cares. Again, it's not a situation of deism. It's not as if God wound up the world and pressed the go button and then said, I'm out. God cares. God has always been actively involved in this world in a providential way, and God continues in a providential way to see after the needs of his people. Number three, God is not unapproachable. Sometimes we come across a person and we describe that person as being maybe not a people person or being unapproachable. And what we mean by that is what? Usually you go try to carry on a conversation with a person who's unapproachable and they leave you feeling kind of weird and awkward about yourself. You're kind of wondering whether or not that person wished that you never would have spoken to them in the first place and thinking that they probably can't wait till you go away. That's an unapproachable person. God is not unapproachable. God cares and God wants to listen. And then number four, 
And this is the conclusion of the Hebrews writer at the end of verse number 16. When we approach the throne of grace, we are approaching a place where we can find help. In fact, he says, we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mercy, literally the sympathy for the one who is coming for help, and finding grace is the help we need. And I think the implication would be something like this. We cannot win the victory on our own. Now imagine how comforting that must have been for these first century Christians, these Jewish Christians who were struggling and suffering and contemplating, turning their back on Christianity because of the pressures that are being forced upon them. And the writer wants them to know, look, you need to think about the fear. You need to think about the consequences of apostasy, chapter 4, verse 1. You need to think about the importance of laboring and doing everything within your power to enter into his rest, chapter 4, verse number 11. But you also need to know that because our high priest is so great, you need to hold fast, you need to stay firm. And also, by the way, let me tell you that we have the ability to approach our God and find help, the help that you need for the struggle that you're having the struggle that's causing you to think about giving up on Christianity. Listen, don't give up on Christianity because if you do, you give up on your help. You lose your lifeline. You lose your source of grace and mercy in time of need. It's a very encouraging passage, not just for them, but it must be an encouraging passage for us today because we live in a pressure-filled world a busy world, a world that is constantly trying to steal our attention, divert our attention away from Christ and, and convince us to turn our back on Him. It's not an easy life all the time being a Christian, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. But we know that at any time we can bow our heads and through our great high priest, we can enter into the throne room of our God, the Holy of Holies, if you will, and we can have his full attention. What a blessing. Tonight, if you're not a Christian, tonight, if you're not a Christian, I don't say this to be mean, but it's true, and I say it because I care. You don't have the ability to approach the throne of grace through the great high priest. That is an ability that belongs to those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And what the Bible teaches us is that God's desire is for everyone to become a Christian by believing in the deity of Jesus and repenting of sins and confessing faith and being immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. And the Bible tells us that when we're willing to do that, that the Lord will add us to the body of Jesus Christ. We will become one of his children. And then at any time, we have the ability to approach our God through our great high priest. Tonight, if you're a Christian and you're struggling in your life, contemplating faithfulness, dealing with difficulty and persecution or trial or whatever the case may be, can we approach God's throne on your behalf? Can we pray for you so that you might find grace, mercy, and grace to help in time of need? It would be our privilege. Come forward, let your need be known as we stand and sing.